When I was a young boy, I first encountered them. Imaginary characters, courtesy of a Disney movie. Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Owl, Rabbit, Kanga, Roo, Tigger, and Eeyore. Now, when I first encountered them, I did so via a movie produced by Disney. Perhaps that's where those of you who are familiar with these characters first encountered them as well. But of course, Disney didn't create them. They were actually created by the mind of a man by the name of A.A. A. Milne way back in 1926. But Disney, in turn, many years later, late 60s, I believe, brought them to, quote, cartoon life. Now, of all the characters, and I enjoyed them all, Tigger and Eeyore were by far my favorite. Although their personalities, for those of you who know the story, and let me just get a show of hands, just curious, how many are familiar with the stories of Winnie the Pooh? Okay. Anyone not familiar, and this is not a crime if you're not familiar with the stories of Winnie the Pooh, you will not be judged, judged harshly, but it seems as though most people are. Uh, so back to the personalities. Tigger, as you know, is the life of the party with boundless energy. He literally bowled his friends over with his body and his enthusiasm and his zest for life. He even had the audacity to have his own theme song about himself, which he shared, without anyone asking him to, with his friends. Here's a snippet from that song. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, trouncy, ouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers, you know the words, is I'm the only one. Now, Eeyore is a very different cat, or make that donkey. In the words of a writer by the name of Chris Cox, who wrote about Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh some years ago on one of their anniversaries, and he was writing in the publication, actually online publication, Guardian.com, he wrote, the other animals, Pooh, Piglet, Owl, and the rest, dwell happily in the 100-acre wood. They knock on each other's doors, they have tea, and they go on adventures together. But not Eeyore. He lives on the other side of the stream in his gloomy place, marked on the map as rather boggy and sad. Rather than venture out to see others, he waits for them to pass through his field, which doesn't happen often. I'll try to do my Eeyore voice. I used to be pretty good at this. I'm, I'm a little out of practice. I have my friends, he notes. Someone spoke to me only yesterday. Eeyore craves love, but he struggles to give it and receive it. When love is offered to him, he puts out his hoof and he waves it away. So there's my English contribution to the message today or the services today, but a question may come up. What do Tigger and Eeyore have to do with us as Christians? Here's my answer. There are times in life that our emotional state of mind bears some resemblance to both of those characters. Now, I grant you they're a bit extreme, but I think that there's something that we can learn from them as we deal with the challenges 
in our life. Mr. Coburnite just spoke about the importance of overcoming. Well, what is it that we have to overcome? Well, we have a lot to overcome sometimes. But I think they can teach us something, and so I brought them up to use an example. So I'm going to ask you, uh, we're going to take a survey, but please do not raise your hand. But I want you, of course, and I'm sure you will, answer honestly within the confines of your own heart to these questions that I'm going to ask. Are you discouraged, depressed, apathetic, or lonely? Or on the other hand, are you encouraged, excited, and enthusiastic about your life? I feel confident that if I were to have the answers in front of me at this moment, that some, if they, and I'm sure they would, answered honestly, some would say that yes, they are discouraged, and yes, they are depressed, apathetic, and lonely. And on the other hand, I also believe that some would say, yeah, I've got it going on. Things are fantastic, and I feel great about my life. And I think those answers would be honest. But as I say, and I make this statement, I believe that this is a reality, and it's an important reality for us to consider that here in the body of Christ, at the very same time, there are people here who feel like they are on top of the world, and there are those who feel as though they are bearing the weight of the world, and it's all happening at the exact same time. So today, we're going to talk about discouragement and encouragement, but first, before I do that, I want to look at two scriptures that remind us, I believe, of God's love, and there are many, many scriptures we could look at, but these scriptures, I believe, remind us of God's care, his attention to us as human beings, his love for every one of us, no matter what you're going through, what, no matter what you're trying to overcome in life. Let's turn to perhaps an unexpected place perhaps to begin, but let, if you would, let's go back to one of the beginnings of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And I think it's easy to read through this and it may come across as a bit of list, a, a bit of a list, but I think at the same time, if we give it some thought, it actually tells us a lot about God and how, what he thinks about us and what he had in mind from the very beginning. So Genesis 1 in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Stop. Take that for granted, don't we? But a momentous moment in time. God wanted something, despite the fact that he was brilliant, all-powerful, everything he had, been alive forever, all those things. It, he wanted something else, and he wanted mankind to exist, all of us. It's the only reason we're even here today. And he goes on. He wants more than that. He wanted them to be according to our image, according to our likeness. He wanted us to bear a resemblance to him. Now, I, I can't survey all the parents in the room, but when you have a child, usually someone will ask you, well, who does he look like? Or who does she look like? And sometimes, of course, as a parent, you're kind of interested to see how the children uh, turn out and who do you think he looks like. And here, God clearly wanted us to look like him. That's what he wanted. That was his thought process. 
And he continues, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God didn't just want to make us and then boss us around and have, a, have us have nothing to do. He wanted us to have dominion. He wanted us to have opportunity. He wanted us to be able to manage something, to oversee something, to use our minds, which of course he gave us, and in this case, to have dominion over the animals. I can recommend a show to you if you're looking for something to watch. Can't remember the official title on it. It's, um, I think it's called Shamwari. It's a private game reserve in Africa, South Africa. And it's really interesting. They, it's a, they manage, it's a conversation preserve. They try to take care of the animals. But you see them working with these great beasts, elephants, rhinoceros, lions. And it's just amazing to watch. But it really drives home the lesson that God gave man dominion, even over these incredible, huge, powerful animals. And you see it firsthand. But that's what God wanted for us. He wanted us to have opportunity. And so we realize as we go on that he did indeed, of course, create man. He created them male and female in verse 17. There's no confusion. We've covered this, I think, recently. Very simple. There should be male and there should be female, just like we have sitting here in the audience today. Each had a role and a place in God's plan. Verse 28, God blessed them. He wanted mankind to have favor. He gave them favor. So I hope as I go through this somewhat exhaustive list, that you consider and maybe later on meditate on some of these things and what, what God is doing in a section of scriptures that can be easy to maybe just read over and say, oh, I know all that. So he blessed them. And he goes on, I want them to be fruitful and multiply. As I considered this, it may be one of the few things that man has actually done reasonably well in terms of obeying God. We have been fruitful and we have multiplied and that's why there's someone for me to talk to today. So at least man did that part, but it's easy to take that for granted too. And he talks about filling the earth and subdue it, etc., etc., etc. And he gives food, dropping down to verse 29. So the point I'm making is God went to great effort and put much thought into bringing us into being in the first place and the, the care he took, the opportunities he gave to us. One last thing that I'll mention in verse 19, I'll just reference it. I find this interesting because sometimes God does things that I wonder, well, why did he even bother having man do that? He could have just done that himself. And in verse 19, it's, this is one of those items. God brought every beast and bird to Adam to see what he would call it. Now, I know there's a few folks in this room who have their own business. When you were coming up with a name for your business, if you had adult children around at the time, did you ever ask them, or did you say, you know what, I want you to name it. I have the confidence in you, I want to give you the ability to do that. You use your mind, you use your ability, you do it. But in a sense, that's kind of what God did here. You do it. I want to see what you come up with. I want you to have that opportunity. So I hope that this gives us a bit of a flavor of the care and the attention God gave to mankind at the very beginning. And of course, I shouldn't stop without saying that God also wanted man to take of the tree of life and live forever. Unfortunately, no, that didn't work out at that point in time, but it's not over yet. If you would turn now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So now here we are, Christians sitting here today, uh, many here baptized, some will be baptized, of course, in the future. 
as the cycle goes on, and that's an exciting thing for all of us. But in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, I can get over there, and there we are. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, of course. And he talks about something uh, in terms of the body of Christ, all of those who are baptized. Let's see what we can learn about God's attention to detail and his care and his deliberate concern for everybody, everybody in this room. For as the body is one, talking about the human body, and has many members or parts, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So as we sit here, sit here today, all of us, we are those members. We are part of Christ's very body. He is the head of that body. It's sometimes hard to wrap your brain around it, but that is what God is saying. Verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This reflects, it kind of connects back to what uh, Mr. Cobrant was saying. It doesn't matter if you were Jewish, it doesn't matter if you were Greek, whether you were slave or free. You've all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member. It's not just a foot walking around by itself. There's lots of body parts, if you will. And verse 15 is very interesting. And you might ask yourself, why does he even say this? Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? So why would he even bring that up? Well, I think it's because we have the tendency to look at other people in the congregation at times. I'm guilty of it. I'm sure you have perhaps had these thoughts before. Well, look at that guy over there. He does A, B, and C. Man, I wish that was me. I, or I would really wish I had the opportunity to do what that person's doing. Guy, girl, man, woman, whatever. And so Paul, I believe, is addressing that right here. And he goes on to say, because it's a final right verse, is it therefore not of the body? Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? It's a very simple yet very profound statement. If the whole body were hearing, where would the smelling be? So clearly we have to have different functions. And everybody here has a different function, a different gift. But here's what we should take great encouragement in especially if you're fighting through discouragement right now. Verse 18, but now God has set the members, the parts of the body, each one of them in the body just as he pleased. Think about that for a moment. God in heaven looked down and said, I want you right here. I've got a place for you, I have a role for you, and I need you to do it to help the body accomplish what it needs to accomplish. We all appreciate it when our feet get us where we're going and our eyes work to help the feet not step on, I don't know, broken glass or whatever might be in the way. It works together. We are all to work together and everybody has something to do to make that happen. And we go on, each one in the body just as he pleased. Verse 24, but our presentable parts have no need. In other words, those are more comely, if you will. Uh, didn't really need to do much with those, but God composed a body, here he says it again, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, so that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, if we stub our toe, 
our brain knows it pretty quickly. And maybe our leg begins to feel it, and maybe we're limping, and it starts to, you feel the pain up your back as you're overcompensating for the pain in one part of your body. Physically, it's easy to see that. And I think it's true in the church that we do have compassion for one another, and we do feel the pain of others. But we have to continue to fight that battle to do that. It's easy to get busy. It's easy to forget. And it's a little more challenging for us in the spiritual body to do that. But if one member suffers, all members suffers with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Well, do we do that? Because sometimes human nature slips in and someone else is getting honored. We're like, eh, I don't know if that guy really deserved that. I mean, that's carnal nature and we all have to fight it. But this is something that God, before we can take up that crown that Carmelite talked about, we have to overcome this. But the good news is God put us in a place as he saw fit, our perfect, brilliant father. Well, now that we've reminded ourselves of God's intimate involvement, let's talk about some of these emotions. We don't often talk about them. We often lump them into the word trial, which is fine. Uh, and let's be honest, you don't normally go uh, to a dinner party and say, someone says, hey, how are you doing? Really, really, really discouraged really feel lonely. You might feel that, but you don't say it, do you? So words like depression, discouragement, apathy, loneliness, these aren't words we like to talk much about, but they are real. They're real for us, and they are real for people who serve God. But before we go into the Bible and look at some examples, I want to share a couple of, or a few common triggers for discouragement, because I think you can find, I can say this is true for me, that discouragement sometimes sneaks up on you and you may find that you're suddenly swimming in a giant swimming pool full of it and you're not even really sure how you got there. But let's look at a few. This came from a source called helpguide.org. It actually was talking about midlife crisis. But I don't think these are necessarily relegated to that part of life. Here's a few that they mentioned. You may start to regret your career path career path, sorry. You may feel trapped by your financial decisions. You may worry about a decline in your physical abilities. You may fret about the goals that you've missed out on. You may be facing a shift, an increase, or a decrease in your responsibilities. You might be taking care of an aging parent. You have to accept that your children are becoming more independent, or maybe it's a long-running health issue, and these are a few that I added myself. Mr. Frank's point, this one out. Maybe you were going through a severe trial and you have not seen the miraculous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. It didn't work out that way. Number 10, you don't have close friends and you feel alone. And sometimes you're dealing with several of these all at the very same time. Again, I'm not gonna take a survey. I'm certainly not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but the, and I'm not trying to press all of you further. We're gonna to get to some encouraging parts too. But this is real and we shouldn't ignore it and, and we shouldn't imagine that everyone is leading a Pollyanna life. Not that I think many of us think that. The church talks about this from time to time and there's a blog that I found written by Eddie Foster back in January of 2013 and he had a few phrases within his article that I read. I thought. Uh, were very helpful, so I wanted to share those with you right now. If you are struggling with discouragement, apathy, or loneliness, 
Ask yourself if this is happening to you. Actually, that's, I wrote that. I can't remember who wrote here. I wrote that part. But when we suffer loss, he wrote this part, disappointment, failure, or maybe just monotony, or whatever else, and I like the way he put this, whatever else the devil or Satan makes louder than God's truth in our lives. Depression can be the negative emotion that we feel. Our thoughts can become very focused on the present and we can't get past the fact that we are hurting so bad right now and that is all we can focus on. So, I will, and I should say this, I'm certainly not a professional counselor. I cannot say that what I'm saying today can help everybody in every situation. Uh, and there, may certainly, there are certainly cases where account, you know, professional counselors are needed and, and, and all of that. But I do think that nonetheless, that God's word he, that I can share with you today can be of help to most of us in what we're facing with, if you are even facing it right now. Let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 88, verse 3. We'll look at a few examples in any one of you, and I know that most of you have, if you've ever read the book of Psalms, you'll know that there's plenty to be said about discouragement. Psalms 88, verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, apathy, fatigue, exhaustion. Verse 5, I am adrift among the dead, have no purpose. I tried to imagine this, I tried to get my mind in that, and I found it hard to even imagine what the writer is saying. To some degree I can, but not fully. But I think we can all agree that this was a severe trial, a very difficult set of situation that, that the writer was dealing with. Let's go to another one, please. Psalms chapter 6, verse 6. This is a Psalm of David. I am weary with my groaning. Weary, tired, groaning, painful, suffering. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. I don't know how many people have been in, in that situation. Uh, I haven't quite hit that in my life. Uh, it doesn't sound like a great place to be, but pr probably some of us have at times. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. And maybe one more. Psalm 13, verse 1. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul? I read that. I think it's right say he's just, this person is just going around and around and around in his mind over and over again, whatever it is that he's battling here. Having sorrow in my heart, my heart daily, filled with sorrow, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? In just two verses, the writer asks the question, how long? Four times. Verse 5, verse 6, we do get encouragement. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in, in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we see the glimmer of light in this particular psalm, even though he feels that he's been abandoned. But he comes back to himself, and I think that's true of what happens to us in life and what must happen when we're going through discouragement. 
We have to come back to God. We have to come back to the glory of God. We have to come back to the power of his way of life. And sometimes that's not always easy to do. So the Psalms reveal that God's servants are not immune from despair, discouragement, apathy, or loneliness. But they also show a faith that God provides the salvation. Let's look at another example. Elijah, when I was, again, relatively young, my mother came into the church, probably around the age of 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, she would read to me and my siblings from the church's Bible story. So I, I think, I think, that's the first time I ever heard the story, but it always, like, never quite, I couldn't understand it because, it, again, this is the story of Elijah. This is Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Uh, most of you know the story. Israel is trying to have it both ways. They want to worship God, kind of. They want to worship Baal, kind of. And King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are on the thrones. And so it was a difficult time. So we have this climatic event where Elijah faces off with 400 prophets of Baal. He's by himself. And he calls heaven, you know, he prays to God and fire, I'm obviously shortening the story, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice that Elijah has prepared. And of course, the 450 prophets of Baal, they try, they dance around, they cut themselves, they try to get Baal to do his thing, but of course, nothing happens. So we have this incredible victory. I, that's when I first heard it, I thought, that's incredible, look, look at what happened here. And not only that, but after that part of the story, all 450 prophets of Baal were executed. And Elijah was part of that. So, I mean, how could you not have a greater victory than that? And yet, within just a verse or two, Queen Jezebel is up to her, her old tricks, and she sends a messenger and she, to Elijah, and she says, you're going to die. I'm going to take your life. And what does he do? He's not full of this, you know, I, I think it's, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but we see at this point he is so done, he's so tired, he gets up and he runs. Because one, he knows what Jezebel is like, and he knows that she will and can do it without God intervening. And I will again paraphrase uh, for the sake of time, but he runs away, and then in verse 4 of 1 Kings 19, verse 4, let's read that, please. 1 Kings 19, 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And that's, that's about as bad as it gets. Here he is, one of the greatest servants of God of all time, and he's praying, can I just die? I'm, 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 I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I did all this great, man, this is what he's thinking. I did this incredible thing, or I had this faith, and yet here I am, and this crazy woman is about to, she's going to kill me. And he just, he was done. He said, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Incredible turn of events in such a short period of time. In other words, God does not abandon him. And I will um, just summarize what happens here. So an angel is sent, food is given, cakes are burnt, you know, prepared on a coal of fire. It's very picturesque. A jar of water is provided for Elijah. And gradually God, through these acts of kindness, get Elijah's attention, and he comes back, if you will, to his senses. But he does, along the way, get asked a couple of very, uh, actually asked the same question twice. In verse 9, he says, God says to him, what are you doing here? 
Elijah. So Elijah has run away, he's hiding, he's in despair. And he says in verse 10, Elijah answers, I'm skipping ahead, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now, one thing is interesting about this, well, multiple, but he is actually physically alone. And if you've ever been in a situation when you are totally alone, well, that's very daunting, especially when it's a challenging situation. You look around, no one to help. It's just you. Verse 13, God asks him again. A voice comes to him and says, what are you doing here? Elijah, do you ever feel like, don't raise your hands, ever feel like God has come to you and basically asked you that question, what are you doing? Again, Elijah, verse 14, says the same thing. I'm alone, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Verse 15, by this point, I think God has gotten Elijah's attention, and that he's also ready to have him get back to work, get back to performing his will, get back to doing what God wants him to do. And he, he gives him several things to do. Go, return on your way. When you arrive, anoint, speaking of anointing, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you should anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king of Israel, and Elisha, the son of... And so several things. Get, get back to it. Get back to doing my will. But then in verse 18, he also provides this important lesson to Elijah. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed, bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So sometimes we are physically alone, but we are never alone because God, of course, is with us. And all of us, if we are a functioning body of Christ, should also be with us even if you aren't there physically. So I'll suggest maybe three things to do if you're in a very discouraged state of mind right now. I think number one, the most important thing to do is you, no matter what, and maybe you have a list of four or five things that are absolutely real and absolutely true and absolutely downers in your life. You have to kind of set them aside, and you have to say, you have to believe that God's way in living it is more powerful, more powerful, more awesome, and it will trump no matter everything else in your life. You have to come to that point. And I think that's what God was trying to get Elijah to realize. Set it aside. God will take care of it. Number two, you may have to just accept that some of the things in your life that you're wrestling with, some of the things that didn't turn out the way you wanted them to, aren't going to change. Paul, of course, as you know, asked for relief from an ailment, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And sometimes that's what happens. And sometimes we just have to accept it, but at the same time, keeping that bigger picture that living God's way of life will trump it, will overcome it, will make life have meaning and purpose and joy again. And of course, we can take heart in God's compassion. Remember the story of how he brought the food and the water to Elijah and helped him. And he answered his questions, and he got him back up and running again. Well, let's move on. Because everyone didn't answer the survey at the very beginning the same way. Not everybody is discouraged. So what about those folks? There are times in a Christian's life when he or she feels like, as I said, they're on the top of the world. And maybe, relatively speaking, you are. In today's parlance, we would say you're killing it. Kind of a strange saying, but that's what we say. 
your job, your career, your hobbies, your extracurricular activities, your family life, your friends, everything seems to be clicking. And it happens sometimes. And hopefully your spiritual life is also quite strong. When life is like that and your spirits are high, it can be a challenge when you're around those in the church whose life and whose spirits are not in the same place as yours. You're Tigger and they're Eeyore. And so what do you do? Years ago, when I first started coming to church, apparently this is old time stories with George, I didn't really intend it that way, but anyway, years ago when I first started coming to church, my first friend in the church, we were friends for a couple of decades and he ended up leaving at the time that many people left in the mid to late 90s. And he told me why he left. He said, I left because everybody in my congregation, they're just a bunch of Eeyores. And I was like, what? It was shocking, it was hurtful to hear him say that. Kind of rude, insensitive, whatever you want to call it. And I would say it's also worth asking the question, was there any truth to what he said? Well, there probably was some truth in it. There probably were people who were down, trodden, going through trials, and maybe their emotional state was not the best. But was his reaction the right one? I think we would agree that it was not. It was absolutely not the right reaction to what he thought he saw. So for those today who are closer to the Tigger end of the emotional spectrum, let's look at a few scriptures that remind us of what we get to do when we are in that wonderful time of life. And it is a wonderful time of life. Turn, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 1. These are very straightforward scriptures. Now we who are strong, got it going on, things are clicking, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. You gotta pick up, you gotta pick up the weight. And of course that implies, if it's a, a command or instruction, it implies that with God's help you have the power and the strength to do it. This does not just please yourself. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his own good, to his edification. For even Christ, the creator, our Savior, he didn't please himself, but as it is written, the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. Paul writes about this again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. You know, the word encourage in our English language sometimes seems like it loses its oomph. So I think we should, oh, you know, say something nice, make them feel better. But obviously within that word encourage is courage, which we tend to think of in terms of being brave and strong and gets the bullets flying our way. Uh, so I think perhaps we maybe discount that word uh, sometimes, or maybe it's just me. So it seems straightforward, right? You just help the weak, okay, encourage the faint-hearted, but there's a challenge there, actually, because sometimes, as I said before, when people are discouraged, they don't normally volunteer that they're discouraged because if you're talking to them after church, you know, it's kind of a, you know, how are you doing? I'm really discouraged, feel terrible. Don't feel like I can, go, I can go on anymore. It's not a great conversation starter and we don't usually go there. But it, it may be the reality. So what can we do about it? There is a way to maybe find these things out in an appropriate way, in a godly way. If you would turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. 
And I, for sake of time, I'm going to skip verses 19, 20, and 20, yeah, 19, verses 19, verses 23. But I would encourage you to go back and read those verses and then realize what a transition starts to happen here and ask yourself, why did God put these together? Because at first blush, it seems like they seem like radically different thoughts. Verse 24, though, we'll focus there. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Stop there. So this word consider has been talked about before, but in the Greek, it means to consider carefully. So if we're going to consider each other carefully, how are we going to do that if one, and I'm not, I don't mean to cast stones, but if we never talk to someone, it's going to be tough to consider them carefully. If we never ask questions about them and how they're doing, it's going to be really hard to consider them carefully and have any idea of what's going because going on. Because let's face it, if you're down, you have to have someone that you can trust to share your most personal feelings with. And that's not someone you just normally just flip out you know, easily like, oh, I'll tell you how I feel. Here's how I feel. So we have to consider carefully. It takes time. It takes some thought. It takes deliberate action. But the rest of the verse is also very instructive. It says, because it's not just that you need to, that we need to consider them carefully. It, it goes on to say, in order to do what? To stir up love and good works. And that word stir up, it means to actually do something. And this is really interesting. If I can find what it says, it's a provocation. I've actually talked about this before. It's a provocation which literally jabs and cuts someone so they must respond. Think of a time in your life where someone did something as a Christian that you witnessed, you were around, and it just got you. And you're like, I gotta, I gotta do better. I don't know, maybe you're standing around uh, in the fellowship hall and someone starts cleaning up and you're just standing there. And you're like, I guess they're all by themselves. I should do something. That's a simple example. But this is what God is saying. We need to consider each other carefully so that we can stir up more good works. So as I begin to wrap it up here today, uh, for those who are encouraged, you're on the top of the world, understand that your brethren may be very discouraged even if they don't say they are. You must and can do something to help. It doesn't have to be epic. It can just be talking, taking time to talk on a regular basis chatting with them, showing them that you care about them. So as we conclude, those who feel more like Eeyore than Tigger at the moment know this. Depression, discouragement, apathy, and loneliness will at times impact Christians. The great servants of God were not immune to it, but they fought it. It is a fight, and they overcame it. They knew that God loved them, and they believed that his way trumped it all. Those of you closer to the ticker end of the spectrum, first of all, good for you. No, really, good for you. Remember that you have a responsibility to carefully consider the needs of others, especially those of the faith who are going through discouraging and lonely times. And the final thing I'll say is this. Mr. Franks and Horchak have spoken in recent weeks about the importance of faith. Do we really believe there's a God in heaven? Can we have that faith in times of great trial, as Mr. Franks spoke of, and the overwhelming importance of us being able to do that? Mr. Burnett gave a three-part message 
about the glory of and the importance of God's law. So whether we are encouraged or discouraged, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, I'm asking myself this very same question, do you, do I really believe that when we read God's word, it's universe altering? If you saw a picture, and many of you have, if you saw a picture from the James Webb Telescope, how many have seen a picture recently from James Webb Telescope or maybe the Hubble, or just some picture of the night sky that really moved you? Anyone here? Yep, yep. Okay, so you imagine that in your mind's eye, but then take that out, move that slide, and move to the next slide. I didn't have slides on the screen, but the next slide is this. It reads the following. You shall have no other gods before me. Of those two pictures, of those two slides, which one is most moving to you? Which one is most important to all of us? I have to, I'm trying to ask myself that question. But I think when it gets down to it, no matter where you are in life, it all gets down to do we really believe that God's word is all powerful and is brilliant and it is perfect and that when we practice it and we yield to God, and God's, with God's help, we can change the world. And if we do, as Mr. Armstrong used to say way back in the day, if we can do that, we win. Being from out of town, it's also nice to see some faces that we don't get to see that often, so welcome to you, and hope you have a wonderful evening tonight. A bit of a spoiler alert as I begin today, uh, Mr. Kobernot's message, uh, obviously always good, and he had a bit of an English, uh, obviously, uh, overlay to it, and I will do the same. Uh, mine will not be quite as regal as Mr. Kobernot's, but I think it might also be memorable and hopefully helpful nonetheless. When I was a young boy, I first encountered them, imaginary characters courtesy of a Disney movie, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Owl, Rabbit, Kanga, Roo, Tigger, and Eeyore. Now, when I first encountered them, I did so via a movie produced by Disney. Perhaps that's where those of you who are familiar with these characters first encountered them as well. But of course, Disney didn't create them. They were actually created by the mind of a man by the name of A.A. A. Milne, way back in 1926. But Disney, in turn, many years later, late 60s, I believe, brought them to, quote, cartoon life. Now, of all the characters, and I enjoyed them all, Tigger and Eeyore were by far my favorite. Although their personalities, for those of you who know the story, and let me just get a show of hands, just curious, how many are familiar with the stories of Winnie the Pooh? Okay. Anyone not familiar, and this is not a crime if you're not familiar with the stories of Winnie the Pooh, you will not be judged, judged harshly, but it seems as though most people are. Uh, so back to the personalities. Tigger, as you know, is the life of the party with boundless energy. He literally bowled his friends over with his body and his enthusiasm and his zest for life. He even had the audacity to have his own theme song about himself, which he shared 
without anyone asking him to, with his friends. Here's a snippet from that song. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, trouncy, ouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers, you know the words, is I'm the only one. Now, Eeyore is a very different cat, or make that donkey. In the words of a writer by the name of Chris Cox, who wrote about Eeyore in one of the posts some years ago on one of their anniversaries, and he was writing in the publication, actually online publication, Guardian.com, he wrote, the other animals, Pooh, Piglet, Owl, and the rest, dwell happily in the 100-acre wood. They knock on each other's doors, they have tea, and they go on adventures together. But not Eeyore. He lives on the other side of the stream in his gloomy place, marked on the map as rather boggy and sad. Rather than venture out to see others, he waits for them to pass through his field, which doesn't happen often. I'll try to do my Eeyore voice. I used to be pretty good at this. I'm, I'm a little out of practice. I have my friends, he notes. Someone spoke to me only yesterday. Eeyore craves love, but he struggles to give it and receive it. When love is offered to him, he puts out his hoof and he waves it away. So there's my English contribution to the message today or the services today, but a question may come up. What do Tigger and Eeyore have to do with us as Christians? Here's my answer. There are times in life that our emotional state of mind bears some resemblance to both of those characters. Now, I grant you they're a bit extreme, but I think that there's something that we can learn from them as we deal with the challenges in our life. Mr. Coburnite just spoke about the importance of overcoming. Well, what is it that we have to overcome? Well, we have a lot to overcome sometimes but I think they can teach us something, and so I brought them up to use an example. So I'm gonna ask you, uh, we're gonna take a survey, but please do not raise your hand. But I want you, of course, and I'm sure you will, answer honestly within the confines of your own heart to these questions that I'm going to ask. Are you discouraged, depressed, apathetic, or lonely? Or on the other hand, are you encouraged, excited, and enthusiastic about your life? I feel confident that if I were to have the answers in front of me at this moment, that some, if they, and I'm sure they would, answered honestly, some would say that yes, they are discouraged, and yes, they are depressed, apathetic, and lonely. And on the other hand, I also believe that some would say, yeah, I've got it going on. Things are fantastic, and I feel great about my life. And I think those answers would be honest. But as I say, and I make this statement, I believe that this is a reality, and it's an important reality for us to consider that here in the body of Christ, at the very same time, there are people here who feel like they're on top of the world, and there are those who feel as though they are bearing the weight of the world, and it's all happening at the exact same time. So today, we're going to talk about discouragement, 
and encouragement. But first, before I do that, I want to look at two scriptures that remind us, I believe, of God's love. And there are many, many scriptures we could look at. But these scriptures, I believe, remind us of God's care, his attention to us as human beings, his love for every one of us, no matter what you're going through, what, no matter what you're trying to overcome in life. Let's turn to perhaps an unexpected place, perhaps, to begin. But let, if you would, let's go back to one of the beginnings of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And I think it's easy to read through this, and it may come across as a bit of list, a, a bit of a list. But I think at the same time, if we give it some thought, it actually tells us a lot about God and how, what he thinks about us and what he had in mind from the very beginning. So Genesis 1 in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Stop. Take that for granted, don't we? But a momentous moment in time. God wanted something, despite the fact that he was brilliant, all-powerful, everything he had, been alive forever, all those things. It, he wanted something else, and he wanted mankind to exist, all of us. It's the only reason we're even here today. And he goes on. He wants more than that. He wanted them to be according to our image, according to our likeness. He wanted us to bear a resemblance to him. Now, I, I can't survey all the parents in the room, but when you have a child, usually someone will ask you, well, who does he look like? Or who does she look like? And sometimes, of course, as a parent, you're kind of interested to see how the children uh, turn out and who do you think he looks like. And here, God clearly wanted us to look like him. That's what he wanted. That was his thought process. And he continues, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God didn't just want to make us and then boss us around and have, a, have us have nothing to do. He wanted us to have dominion. He wanted us to have opportunity. He wanted us to be able to manage something, to oversee something, to use our minds, which of course he gave us, and in this case, to have dominion over the animals. I can recommend a show to you if you're looking for something to watch. Can't remember the official title on it. It's, um, I think it's called Shemwari. It's a private game reserve in Africa, South Africa. And it's really interesting, they, it's a, they manage, it's a conversation preserved, they try to take care of the animals, but you see them working with these great beasts, elephants, rhinoceros, lions, and it's just amazing to watch, but it really drives home the lesson that God gave man dominion, even over these incredible, huge, powerful animals, and you see it firsthand. But that's what God wanted for us, he wanted us to have opportunity. And so we realize as we go on that he did indeed, of course, create man. He created them male and female in verse 17. There's no confusion. We've covered this, I think, recently. Very simple. There should be male and there should be female, just like we have sitting here in the audience today. Each had a role and a place in God's plan. Verse 28, God blessed them. He wanted mankind to have favor. He gave them favor. So I hope as I go through this somewhat exhaustive list, that you consider and maybe later on meditate on some of these things and what, what God is doing in a section of scriptures that can be easy to maybe just read over and say, oh, I know all that. 
So he blessed them. And he goes on, I want them to be fruitful and multiply. As I considered this, it may be one of the few things that man has actually done reasonably well in terms of obeying God. We have been fruitful and we have multiplied, and that's why there's someone for me to talk to today. So at least man did that part. But it's easy to take that for granted too. And he talks about filling the earth and subdue it, etc., etc., etc. And he gives food. Dropping down to verse 29. So the point I'm making is God went to great effort and put much thought into bringing us into being in the first place and the, the care he took, the opportunities he gave to us. One last thing that I'll mention in verse 19, I'll just reference it. I find this interesting because sometimes God does things that I wonder, well, why did he even bother having man do that? He could have just done that himself. And in verse 19, it's, this is one of those things items. God brought every beast and bird to Adam to see what he would call it. Now I know there's a few folks in this room who have their own business. When you were coming up with a name for your business, if you had adult children around at the time, did you ever ask them or did you say, you know what, I want you to name it. I have the confidence in you. I want to give you the ability to do that. You use your mind, you use your ability, you do it. But in a sense, that's kind of what God did here. You do it. I want to see what you come up with. I want you to have that opportunity. So I hope that this gives us a bit of a flavor of the care and the attention God gave to mankind at the very beginning. And of course, I shouldn't stop without saying that God also wanted man to take of the tree of life and live forever. Unfortunately, no, that didn't work out at that point in time, but it's not over yet. If you would turn now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So now here we are, Christians sitting here today, uh, many here baptized, some will be baptized of course in the future as the cycle goes on, and that's an exciting thing for all of us. But in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, if I can get over there, and there we are. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, of course. And he talks about something uh, in terms of the body of Christ, all of those who are baptized. Let's see what we can learn about God's attention to detail and his care and his deliberate concern for everybody, everybody in this room. For as the body is one, talking about the human body, and has many members or parts, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So as we sit here, sit here today, all of us, we are those members. We are part of Christ's very body. He is the head of that body. It's sometimes hard to wrap your brain around it, but that is what God is saying. Verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This reflects, this kind of connects back to what uh, Mr. Cobrant was saying. It doesn't matter if you were Jewish, it doesn't matter if you were Greek, whether you were slave or free. You've all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member. It's not just a foot walking around by itself. There's lots of body parts, if you will. And verse 15 is very interesting. And you might ask yourself, why does he even say this? Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? So why would he even bring that up? Well, I think it's because we have the tendency to look at other people in the congregation at times. I'm guilty of it, I'm sure you have 
Perhaps had these thoughts before. Well, look at that guy over there. He does A, B, and C. Man, I wish that was me. I, or I would really wish I had the opportunity to do what that person's doing. Guy, girl, man, woman, whatever. And so Paul, I believe, is addressing that right here. And he goes on to say, because it's a final right verse, is it therefore not of the body? Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? It's a very simple yet very profound statement. If the whole body were hearing, where would the smelling be? So clearly we have to have different functions and everybody here has a different function, a different gift. But here's what we should take great encouragement in, especially if you're fighting through discouragement right now. Verse 18, but now God has set the members, the parts of the body, each one of them in the body just as he pleased. Think about that for a moment. God in heaven, looked down and said, I want you right here. I've got a place for you, I have a role for you, and I need you to do it, to help the body accomplish what it needs to accomplish. We all appreciate it when our feet get us where we're going and our eyes work to help the feet not step on, I don't know, broken glass or whatever might be in the way. It works together. We are all to work together and everybody has something to do to make that happen. And we go on, each one in the body just as he pleased. Verse 24, but our presentable parts have no need. In other words, those that are more comely, if you will. Uh, didn't really need to do much with those, but God composed the body, here he says it again, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. So that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, if we stub our toe, our brain knows it pretty quickly. And maybe our leg begins to feel it, and maybe we're limping, and it starts to, you feel the pain up your back as you're overcompensating for the pain in one part of your body. Physically, it's easy to see that. And I think it's true in the church that we do have compassion for one another, and we do feel the pain of others. But we have to continue to fight that battle to do that. It's easy to get busy. It's easy to forget. It's a little more challenging for us in the spiritual body to do that. But if one member suffers, all members suffers with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Well, do we do that? Because sometimes human nature slips in and if someone else is getting honored, we're like, eh, I don't know if that guy really deserved that. I mean, that's carnal nature and we all have to fight it. But this is something that God before we can take up that crown that Mr. talked about, we have to overcome this. But the good news is God put us in a place as he saw fit, our perfect, brilliant father. Well, now that we've reminded ourselves of God's intimate involvement, let's talk about some of these emotions. We don't often talk about them. We often lump them into the word trial, which is fine. Uh, and let's be honest, you don't normally go uh, to a dinner party and say, someone says, hey, how are you doing? Really, really, really discouraged. Really feel lonely. You might feel that, but you don't say it, do you? So words like depression, discouragement, apathy, loneliness, these aren't words we like to talk much about, but they are real. They're real for us, and they are real for people who serve God. But before we go into the Bible and look at some examples, I want to share a couple of 
are a few common triggers for discouragement. Because I think you can find, I can say this is true for me, that discouragement sometimes sneaks up on you and you may find that you're suddenly swimming in a giant swimming pool full of it and you're not even really sure how you got there. But let's look at a few. This came from a source called helpguide.org. It actually was talking about midlife crisis. But I don't think these are necessarily relegated to that part of life. Here's a few that they mentioned. You may start to regret your career path. Career path, sorry. You may feel trapped by your financial decisions. You may worry about a decline in your physical abilities. You may fret about the goals that you've missed out on. You may be facing a shift, an increase, or a decrease in your responsibilities. You might be taking care of an aging parent. You have to accept that your children are becoming more independent, or maybe it's a long-running health issue. And these are a few that I added myself. Mr. Frank's point, this one out. Maybe you were going through a severe trial, and you have not seen the miraculous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. It didn't work out that way. Number 10, you don't have close friends, and you feel alone. And sometimes you're dealing with several of these all at the very same time. Again, I'm not going to take a survey. I'm certainly not going to ask you to raise your hands. But the, and I'm not trying to press all of you further. We're going to get to some encouraging parts, too. But this is real, and we shouldn't ignore it, and, and we shouldn't imagine that everyone is leading a Pollyanna life. Not that I think many of us think that. The church talks about this from time to time, and there's a blog that I found written by Eddie Foster back in January of 2013, and he had a few phrases within his article that I read. I thought... Uh, were very helpful, so I wanted to share those with you right now. If you are struggling with discouragement, apathy, or loneliness, ask yourself if this is happening to you. Actually, that's, I wrote that. I can't remember who wrote here. I wrote that part. But when we suffer loss, he wrote this part, disappointment, failure, or maybe just monotony, or whatever else, and I like the way he put this, whatever else the devil or Satan makes louder than God's truth in our lives, Depression can be the negative emotion that we feel. Our thoughts can become very focused on the present and we can't get past the fact that we are hurting so bad right now and that is all we can focus on. So, I will, and I should say this, I'm certainly not a professional counselor. I cannot say that what I'm saying today can help everybody in every situation. Uh, and there, may certainly, there are certainly cases where account, you know, professional counselors are needed and, and, and all of that. But I do think that nonetheless that God's word he, that I can share with you today can be of help to most of us in what we're facing with, if you are even facing it right now. Let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 88, verse 3. We'll look at a few examples in any... One of you, and I know that most of you have, if you've ever read the book of Psalms, you'll know that there's plenty to be said about discouragement. Psalms 88, verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, apathy, fatigue, exhaustion. Verse 5. I am adrift among the dead, have no purpose. I tried to imagine this, I tried to get my mind in that, and I found it hard to even imagine what the writer is saying. To some degree I can, but not fully. But I think we can all agree that this was a severe 
trial, a very difficult set of situation that, that the writer was dealing with. Let's go to another one, please. Psalms chapter 6, verse 6. This is a Psalm of David. I am weary with my groaning. Weary, tired, groaning, painful, suffering. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. I don't know how many people have been in, in that situation. Uh, I haven't quite hit that in my life. Uh, it doesn't sound like a great place to be, but pr probably some of us have at times. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. And maybe one more. Psalm 13, verse 1. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul? I read that, I think it's right, to say he's just, this person is just going around and around and around in his mind over and over again, whatever it is that he's battling here. Having sorrow in my heart, my heart daily, filled with sorrow, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? In just two verses, the writer asks the question, how long, four times? Verse five, verse six, we do get encouragement. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in, in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we see the glimmer of light in this particular psalm, even though he feels that he's been abandoned. But he comes back to himself, and I think that's true of what happens to us in life and what must happen when we're going through discouragement. We have to come back to God. We have to come back to the glory of God. We have to come back to the power of his way of life, and sometimes that's not always easy to do. So the Psalms re reveal that God's servants are not immune from despair, discouragement, apathy, or loneliness. But they also show a faith that God provides the salvation. Let's look at another example. Elijah, when I was, again, relatively young, my mother came into the church, probably around the age of 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, she would read to me and my siblings from the church's Bible story. So I, I think, I think, that's the first time I ever heard the story, but it always like, never quite, I couldn't understand it because, it, again, this is the story of Elijah. This is Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Uh, most of you know the story. Israel is trying to have it both ways. They want to worship God, kinda. They want to worship Baal, kinda. And King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are on the thrones. And so it was a difficult time. So we have this climatic event where Elijah faces off with 400 prophets of Baal. He's by himself. And he calls heaven, you know, he prays to God and fire, I'm obviously shortening the story, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice that Elijah has prepared. And of course, the 450 prophets of Baal, they try, they dance around, they cut themselves, they try to get Baal to do his thing, but of course, nothing happens. So we have this incredible victory. I, that's when I first heard it. I thought, that's incredible. Look, look at what happened here. And not only that, but after that part of the story, all 450 prophets of Baal were executed. And Elijah was part of that. So, I mean, how could you not have a greater victory than that? And yet, within just a verse or two, 
Queen Jezebel is up to her, her old tricks and she sends a messenger and she, to Elijah and she says, you're gonna die. I'm going to take your life. And what does he do? He's not full of this, you know, I think it's, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but we see at this point, he is so done, he's so tired, he gets up and he runs. Because one, he knows what Jezebel is like, and he knows that she will and can do it without God intervening. And I will again paraphrase uh, for the sake of time, but he runs away, and then in verse four of 1 Kings 19, verse four, let's read that please. 1 Kings 19.4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And that's, that's about as bad as it gets. Here he is, one of the greatest servants of God of all time, and he's praying, can I just die? I'm, 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 I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I did all this great, man, this is what he's thinking. I did this incredible thing, or I had this faith, and yet here I am, and this crazy woman is about to, she's gonna kill me. And he just, he was done. He said, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Incredible turn of events in such a short period of time. In other words, God does not abandon him, and I will uh, just summarize what happens here. So an angel is sent Food is given, cakes are burnt, you know, prepared on a coal of fire, it's very picturesque. A jar of water is provided for Elijah and gradually God, through these acts of kindness, get Elijah's attention and he comes back, if you will, to his senses. But he does, along the way, get asked a couple of very, uh, actually asked the same question twice. In verse nine he says, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah has run away, he's hiding, he's in despair. And he says in verse 10, Elijah answers, I'm skipping ahead, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now one thing is interesting about this, well multiple, but he is actually physically alone. And if you've ever been in a situation when you are totally alone, well that's very daunting, especially when it's a challenging situation. You look around, no one to help, it's just you. Verse 13, God asks him again. A voice comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you ever feel like, don't raise your hands, ever feel like God has come to you and basically asked you that question, what are you doing? Again, Elijah, verse 14, says the same thing. I'm alone, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Verse 15, by this point, I think God has gotten Elijah's attention, and that he's also ready to have him get back to work get back to performing his will, get back to doing what God wants him to do. And he, he gives him several things to do. Go, return on your way. When you arrive, anoint, speaking of anointing, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you should anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king of Israel, and Elisha, the son of, and so several things. Get, get back to it, get back to doing my will. But then in verse 18, he also provides this important lesson to Elijah. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed, bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So sometimes we are physically alone, but we are never alone because God, of course, is with us. And all of us, if we are a functioning body of Christ, should also be with us, even if you aren't there physically.
So I'll suggest maybe three things to do if you're in a very discouraged state of mind right now. I think number one, the most important thing to do is you, no matter what, and maybe you have a list of four or five things that are absolutely real and absolutely true and absolutely downers in your life. You have to kind of set them aside and you have to say, you have to believe that God's way in living it is more powerful, more powerful, more awesome, and it will trump no matter everything else in your life. You have to come to that point. And I think that's what God was trying to get Elijah to realize. Set it aside. God will take care of it. Number two, you may have to just accept that some of the things in your life that you're wrestling with, some of the things that didn't turn out the way you wanted them to, aren't going to change. Paul, of course, as you know, asked for relief from an ailment, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And sometimes that's what happens. And sometimes we just have to accept it, but at the same time, keeping that bigger picture, that living God's way of life will trump it, will overcome it, will make life have meaning and purpose and joy again. And of course, we can take heart in God's compassion. Remember the story of how he brought the food and the water to Elijah and helped him. And he answered his questions and he got him back up and running again. Well, let's move on because everyone didn't answer the survey at the very beginning the same way. Not everybody is discouraged. So what about those folks? There are times in a Christian's life when he or she feels like, as I said, they're on the top of the world. And maybe, relatively speaking, you are. In today's parlance, we would say you're killing it. Kind of a strange saying, but that's what we say. Your job, your career, your hobbies, your extracurricular activities, your family life, your friends, everything seems to be clicking. And it happens sometimes. And hopefully your spiritual life is also quite strong. When life is like that and your spirits are high, it can be a challenge when you're around those in the church whose life and whose spirits are not in the same place as yours. You're Tigger and they're Eeyore. And so what do you do? Years ago, when I first started coming to church, Apparently this is old time stories with George. I didn't really intend it that way. But anyway, years ago when I first started coming to church, my first friend in the church, we were friends for a couple of decades and he ended up leaving at the time that many people left in the mid to late 90s. And he told me why he left. He said, I left because everybody in my congregation, they're just a bunch of Eeyores. And I was like, what? It was shocking, it was hurtful to hear him say that. Kind of rude, insensitive, whatever you want to call it. And I would say it's also worth asking the question, was there any truth to what he said? Well, there probably was some truth in it. There probably were people who were down, trodden, going through trials, and maybe their emotional state was not the best. But was his reaction the right one? I think we would agree that it was not, it was absolutely not the right reaction to what he thought he saw. So for those today who are closer to the Tigger end of the emotional spectrum, let's look at a few scriptures that remind us of what we get to do when we are in that wonderful time of life. And it is a wonderful time of life. Turn please to the book of Romans chapter 15, verse one. These are very straightforward scriptures. 
Now we who are strong, got it going on, things are clicking, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. You gotta pick up, you gotta pick up the weight. And of course that implies, if it's a, a command or instruction, it implies that with God's help you have the power and the strength to do it. This does not just please yourself. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his own good, to his edification. For even Christ, the creator, our savior, he didn't please himself, but as it is written, the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. Paul writes about this again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. You know, the word encourage in our English language sometimes seems like it loses its oomph. So I think we should, oh, you know, say something nice, make them feel better. But obviously within that word encourage is courage, which we tend to think of in terms of being brave and strong and gets the bullets flying our way. Uh, so I think perhaps we maybe discount that word uh, sometimes, or maybe it's just me. So it seems straightforward, right? You just help the weak, okay, encourage the faint-hearted, but there's a challenge there, actually, because sometimes, as I said before, when people are discouraged, they don't normally volunteer that they're discouraged because if you're talking to them after church, you know, it's kind of a, you know, how are you doing? I'm really discouraged, I feel terrible. Don't feel like I can, go, I can go on anymore. It's not a great conversation starter and we don't usually go there. But it, it may be the reality. So what can we do about it? There is a way to maybe find these things out in an appropriate way, in a godly way. If you would turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And I, for sake of time, I'm gonna skip verses 19, 20, and 20, yeah, 19, verses 19, verses 23. But I would encourage you to go back and read those verses and then realize what a transition starts to happen here and ask yourself, why did God put these together? Because at first blush, it seems like they seem like radically different thoughts. Verse 24, though, we'll focus there. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Stop there. So this word consider, it's been talked about before. But in the Greek, it means to consider carefully. So if we're going to consider each other carefully, how are we going to do that if one, and I'm not, I don't mean to cast stones, but if we never talk to someone, it's going to be tough to consider them carefully. If we never ask questions about them and how they're doing, it's going to be really hard to consider them carefully and have any idea of what's going, because, going on, because let's face it, if you're down, you have to have someone that you can trust to share your most personal feelings with. And that's not someone you just normally just flip out you know, easily like, oh, I'll tell you how I feel, here's how I feel. So we have to consider carefully. It takes time, it takes some thought, it takes deliberate action. But the rest of the verse is also very instructive. It says, because it's not just that you need to, that we need to consider them carefully. It goes on to say, in order to do what? To stir up love and good works. And that word stir up, it means to actually do something. And this is really interesting. If I can find what it says, it's a provocation. I've actually talked about this before. It's a provocation which literally jabs and cuts someone so they must respond. 
Think of a time in your life where someone did something as a Christian that you witnessed, you were around, and it just got you, and you're like, man, I gotta, I gotta do better. I don't know, maybe you're standing around uh, in the fellowship hall and someone starts cleaning up and you're just standing there. And you're like, I guess they're all by themselves. I should do something. That's a simple example. But this is what God is saying. We need to consider each other carefully so that we can stir up more good works. So as I begin to wrap it up here today, uh, for those who are encouraged, you're on the top of the world, understand that your brethren may be very discouraged even if they don't say they are. You must and can do something to help. It doesn't have to be epic. It can just be talking, taking time to talk on a regular basis, chatting with them, showing them that you care about them. So as we conclude, those who feel more like Eeyore than Tigger at the moment know this. Depression, discouragement, apathy, and loneliness will at times impact Christians. The great servants of God we're not immune to it, but they fought it. It is a fight, and they overcame it. They knew that God loved him, and they believed that his way trumped it all. For those of you closer to the ticker end of the spectrum, first of all, good for you. No, really, good for you. Remember that you have a responsibility to carefully consider the needs of others, especially those of the faith who are going through discouraging and lonely times. And the final thing I'll say is this. Mr. Franks and Horchak have spoken in recent weeks about the importance of faith. Do we really believe there's a God in heaven? Can we have that faith in times of great trials, as Mr. Franks spoke of, and the overwhelming importance of us being able to do that? Mr. Burnett gave a three-part message about the glory of and the importance of God's law. So whether we are encouraged or discouraged, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, I'm asking myself this very same question, do you, do I really believe that when we read God's word, it's universe altering? If you saw a picture, and many of you have, if you saw a picture from the James Webb Telescope, how many have seen a picture recently from James Webb Telescope or maybe the Hubble, or just some picture of the night sky that really moved you? Anyone here? Yep, yep. Okay, so you imagine that in your mind's eye, but then take that out, move that slide, and move to the next slide. I didn't have slides on the screen, but the next slide is this. It reads the following. You shall have no other gods before me. Of those two pictures, of those two slides, which one is most moving to you? Which one is most important to all of us? I have to, I'm trying to ask myself that question. But I think when it gets down to it, no matter where you are in life, it all gets down to do we really believe that God's word is all powerful and is brilliant and it is perfect and that when we practice it and we yield to God and God's, with God's help, we can change the world. And if we do, as Mr. Armstrong used to say way back in the day, if we can do that, we win. <laughs>